Well, as we come back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, last week we introduced our Advent series talking about or looking to how the Apostle, this letter writer to the Hebrew church, how he began to speak on behalf of the Lord God himself, filled with the Holy Spirit, driven along by the Holy Spirit, how our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And maybe as we started dealing with this doctrine of the Trinity, as we began to think about how our God is one God but three persons, you might have thought, well, why would we ever try to tackle such a mysterious doctrine of the faith during the Advent season? And my answer is actually very simple. Because I think that we often misunderstand or misunderstood what happens when Jesus takes on flesh. We just sang about the shepherds who came to the manger there in Bethlehem. And as they see the Christ child wrapped in swaddling clothes being held there by his mother Mary. What are we looking at? We are looking at the God of heaven who has become flesh. The Word of God who has taken on flesh to dwell amongst us so that we might be saved. You remember last week as we introduced this, even before we read these four verses, we were speaking of many different illustrations that we use to try to comprehend or try to describe what our God is in in a triune form. And we talked about water. It can be a liquid, gas, or solid. Ice, steam, or water. H2O itself. Now I even told you that if you've used that illustration, don't do it again. Because it's modalism. It's a form of heresy that our God could not exist in three persons simultaneously. And yet, that's exactly what our Bible declares. That always and at all times... Our God has existed, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I want to talk about this Son. How God has revealed Himself by His Son. We want to look at that Son and see how He is the heir of all things this morning. The heir of all things this morning. Before we do that, let us pray asking for God's help. uh, And then we will read it together. Father in heaven. It is a mystery to us how you can exist as our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet your word has declared that you do so. That from eternity past and to eternity future, you have coexisted with yourself. That you have been in perfect fellowship with the three persons of the Trinity. And in your mere good mercy, because it pleased you, it glorified you to do so, You have called to yourself a people to be ushered into that fellowship. The Apostle John says in 1 John 1 that our fellowship is not only with one another, but it is with you by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father and Son. And so we come knowing that you have revealed yourself to your children, knowing, Lord, that you have given us your word that is perfect and errant, full of authority for our lives. And as we continue to plunder the riches of the mystery 
of this Christ child that we celebrate this Advent season. God made flesh. The God-man, fully God, fully man. We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding. We pray that we would pause and worship at the mystery of the Incarnation. And yet, Lord, as we worship, that we would be reminded that all of these things was for our good. That you were born to save, Lord Jesus Christ. And you have been born for this. To call men, women, and children unto yourself. And so, Father, we do pray that as we study your word this morning, that we would be drawn closer to you. That believers might be encouraged and sanctified that sinners might be saved. So give us ears to hear. We ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, again, reading verses 1 through 4. Hear this, people of God. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God, has, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, I had one of those moments a few weeks ago, and I think we all have had these moments at some point in our lives that I caught myself with a mannerism that is just like my dad's. Have you ever had that moment that you've sat there and you've done something or you've said something and you said, I am saying exactly what my dad says, or I am doing exactly what my dad has done, and it kind of gives you that sobering reality that I am becoming like my parents. And of course, we all said in those moments, we would never do such a thing. But a few weeks ago, I was putting up our inflatables out in front of the house, and you know something about these inflatables, because I said I was the dad years ago that I swore to my wife I would never put gaudy inflatables in front of my house. And yet when the kids began asking for inflatables, that's exactly what I began doing. And after I used that illustration, many of you began to ride by my house to see exactly when the inflatables started going up. And while I was out there with Anna Kate putting up the inflatables, uh, on one weekday afternoon, someone in the church pulled up and I caught myself going, hey, hey, just like that. And as a little kid, as a teenager, I used to ask my dad, why do you say hey twice? I mean, what's the point in it? Do you not think they heard you the first time? You know, what? And, and dad just always said, well, you know, I just do it. And I used to just sit there and laugh at him every time he did it. But then I find myself, as Brother Darrell pulls up in his truck, watching me, picking on me, may I add, for putting up these inflatables, I found myself going, hey, hey. And I thought to myself, I'm becoming just like my dad. 
did, did Daryl not hear me the first time I said it? But you know, our parents tend to imprint something upon our lives. Upon us as people, they leave their mark even in our idiosyncrasies, it seems. And, and the author of Hebrews goes through great lengths to help us to understand that we can use that kind of language, the imprint of our Father. At that moment when I threw my hand up and yelled across the yard, hey, hey, I became an imprint of my Father. And in a fuller sense, the Bible says that that Christ, the Son, is an imprint of God the Father. And as we thought about these things, as we introduced these things last week, we, we saw that the author of Hebrews begins to say, yes, God has spoken to His people in many different ways at many different times through the prophets, like Moses and Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Ezra. And yet, the fullness of time has now come in these last days in which we live now in the present. You notice how the author of Hebrews tells us that we are in those last days, all the way from Christ's ascension back into glory to now, all the way to the second advent when Jesus returns. That is, in the last days, in these days, God has spoken to us by his son. And it's interesting the way that the author of Hebrews says this because he's using a very, a very great, a very mysterious, but a very important doctrine of the Christian faith. That God has now spoken to us by his son implies that now we have a father. You know, all throughout Jesus' ministry, he references the, the Father, God, as his heavenly Father. The same way that we call upon the Father, God, today. And, and being declared in all that is that we have a Father because there is a Son. You know, I might have the imprint of the idiosyncrasies of my Father, but that's because he is my father. My father and mother were not parents until they had me, and how blessed they were to start with me. But they were not fathers and mothers before they had me. And I was not a father until Beth had Brooks. And so for there to be a heavenly father, a father in which Christ the Son calls upon, a heavenly father that we call upon, we must understand that there is now a son. But when it comes to God the Father, there was never a time that there was not a son. You see, before Ernie and Mary were so blessed to add me to their family, there was a time that I was not. And, and they very, you know, sadly, because, you know, I was just so great of an addition, they talked about these days, these sad, sad days that they, you know, could go on vacation when they wanted to, or they could do what they wanted to, or they could sleep all through the night as I was a, a baby. And, 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 you know, they talked about these days before I was around. But you cannot say that about the Father and the Son as He exists eternally. 
There was never a time in which the Father was not the Father, and there was never a time in which the Son was not the Son. And there was never a time that the Son was was apart from the Father. You know, I might, might be like my dad in some ways. Probably in some ways I'm not even ready to admit. But I am not my Father. My Father is one being and I am one being as His Son. But when we talk about the Father and the Son as He exists in the Godhead, in the triune nature of our God, in the Trinity, we are talking about one being. Yes, there are distinctions about God. Yes, there are ways in which the Bible talks about the Son that it does not talk about the Father and ways that the Bible talks about the Father and does not talk about the Son. But we have to understand that the biblical teaching of our God is that He exists as one God in three persons. And what we talked about last week is that that God has revealed Himself to us in these last days by a Son in which we can see, in which we can hear. You know, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 1 that we referenced during our pastoral prayer that as God calls us into fellowship through the election of our salvation, He calls us into fellowship with not only one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, but He calls us into a fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet in 1 John 1, John says, I have seen the Word, I have touched the Word, I have heard the Word, that God has revealed Himself to me by this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can say that same thing. That God has revealed Himself through the Gospel. And so when we think about how God has spoken to us climatically, in fullness, in this self-expressing way, as God has perfectly and completely talked to us, spoke to us in these last days by Son, we have to understand that Son, yes, denotes relation, that the Father has begotten the Son, but we also must understand that the Son is of the Father eternally. He does not have a beginning. I have a beginning. You have a beginning. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there was never a time when God the Son was not. There was never a time when God the Son was inferior or a junior. In Him, all the fullness of the Godhead is pleased to dwell. And as we think about this Son, the author of Hebrews tells us a number of things about Him. And the first thing that it tells us is that He is the, look at verse 2, the heir of all things. The heir of all things. Well, of course, as we think about the heir of all things, we think about some sort of monarchy. We think of some sort of kingship, royalty. And all of those things, all of those contexts are right to think about as we ponder how Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Because we have to understand that it is here that the author of Hebrews is telling us that the Son, that the Son in whom God the Father reveals Himself through, perfectly and completely, it is the Son who rules over everything. 
He is the heir to the throne. And all things are subject to Him. And as the Son has eternally existed, and as the Son will eternally exist, the Son has always had this eternal appointment to the throne. You know, one of the things I think that we misunderstand about the Christmas story is that when Jesus comes as a baby, that we don't take the words of Philippians 2 literally. That He did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but He left His throne on high to humble Himself and take on the form of a servant. You see, before the Lord Jesus Christ comes in that first advent, born of the Virgin Mary, He sits upon His throne, all things under His feet. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We seemingly think that it's not until His name is highly exalted that He is the King. No. In their triune nature, the Son is the heir of all things for eternity. Eternally, He has sat upon His throne. Eternally, He has been God. That's why we use the Nicene Creed during the Advent season so that we might understand that Jesus Christ, the Son, is God of God. That He is the one who sits upon His throne. That He has dominion and possession over all things. And you think about texts like Psalm 2. That second psalm is one of my favorites. And, and in that psalm, you overhear a conversation deep in eternity past when the father says to his son, Today I have begotten you, and ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. You see, here it is that the psalmist is pondering on these things, how Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. That the Son's appointment to the throne is not some event that happened in time, but rather the Son taking His throne is an eternal act of Jesus because He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. And so when you think about these ideas of of being the heir of all things, how Jesus Christ, even in the form of the baby born of a virgin, this is the King. This is the King who rules over all things. This is the one in which the shepherds rightly worship. This is the one that the wise men rightly bow down before. This is the one in which the angels declare that there is majesty, kingship within this baby. And this is not anything new that the Bible is instructing us to believe because Jesus himself has told us in places like John 3 or or, or John 13 or, or Colossians 1 that the Father has given the Son all things. In fact, in Colossians 1, it says, For by Him all things were created, talking about Christ, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. It's that for Him that I want you to hear 
right this second because it shows us that Jesus Christ, the God-man, sits upon His throne and all things were created by Him and for Him. Remember I said if you're thinking about like a monarchy, you're thinking in the right terms. Because here it is that the monarchy, the kingship, the throne belongs to, yes, the Father, but it belongs also to the Son. Because all things are His possession, and He has dominion over all things. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor knows the Father except the Son. You see, He's saying in our triune relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are excluded from all creation. You know, the problem with understanding the Trinity, the reason why we can't understand the Trinity perfectly or completely is is because we have creaturely minds. But God, Father, Son, and Spirit, not being created, far surpasses our human creaturely understanding. Jesus distinguishes Himself and He says, in the perfect relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, This is how we brought the world into being. And this is how we have set the world to operate. There is God, the Creator, Father, Son, and Spirit, and then there is the created. And Jesus is the heir. The Son is the heir of all things because it was made by Him and for Him. And doesn't that make the Advent story so remarkable? Doesn't that make the birth of the Christ child one of those stories that you just sit and and you're flabbergasted? I don't even know if we use that word anymore. Flabbergasted. Flabbergasted on why the Creator would, would take on the created. Why the imperishable would take on the perishable. Why life everlasting would take on death. Why the sinless one would take upon himself sin? Why would the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners, those who are guilty of cosmic treason against Him, their God and their Creator, why would He take on flesh to redeem a people? And it's simply because, it's simply because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit desire to have you as a Christian in that communion with them. It's not that you added some sort of fullness to it. No, beloved, it's because that you might experience the fullness in which they love each other. The early church fathers used to say that the Trinity was the perfect picture of love. You have love, lover, and loved. And it's only when we experience the love of our triune God that we experience love in its fullness. We experience love in its sweetest form. It's only when we're right with our Creator that we have a fullness of life and life everlasting. And so as the Son has this dominion, as He has this possession over his created order to 
to emphasize this. To emphasize this, that's exactly where the author of Hebrews goes, isn't it? He says, he is the heir of all things, there in verse 2, through whom also he created the world. Now that's something else that we might not totally understand. Because we often put the work of creation upon the Father. When we think about Genesis 1 and 2, we think, well, it's the Father who is creating all things. But if you go back this afternoon to Genesis 1 and 2, you will witness a dialogue between the Trinity. For example, they say, let us make man in our own image. Who's the us there? What's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And so when we think about the created order, when we think about how God creates the world with the simple word of His mouth, we must say it is the action of our triune God who does this very thing. If you take out your hymn books, one of the greatest things about this hymn book is it has all these confessions and catechisms at the very back. And I want to try to help us uh, navigate these things sometimes. And so if you'll take out your hymn book and turn to 941. It's the Westminster Larger Catechism. One of the confessional documents of our church. And on 941 we have question 15. We have question 15. And it says, what is the work of creation? The work of creation is that wherein God did in the beginning, by the word of his power, make of nothing the world, and all things therein for himself within the space of six days, and all very good. Here it is that the work of creation is summarized for us in a question and an answer. And as we think about creation, what the author of Hebrews is telling us, it is the Son enacting to create the world in the span of six days out of nothing by the word of His power. And you know how that is displayed to us in the Gospels? Well, it's displayed in many ways, of course. But do you remember the story of Jesus in the boat on the Sea of Galilee? Galilee is surrounded by mountains if you didn't know anything about the geography there. And, and Galilee experiences these random storms that come out of nowhere. If you've been vacationing in the mountains during the summer trying to beat the heat, you know something of these kind of afternoon storms that just seemingly blow into the valleys. That's something that happens here with the disciples. They're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and there's no cloud in the sky, and suddenly a storm swoops through the mountains, and all of a sudden they find themselves in this terrible storm where these seasoned fishermen, they're scared to death, literally thinking that they're going to die on this boat. And they see Jesus sleeping there as they fight the winds and the waves. And they wake Jesus, and you remember what Jesus did? Jesus stands up in the midst of this storm and he speaks, be still. Now, you know, I, I, we have this Sunday school kind of thought about this story and we think of Jesus, you know, being, you know, a little tired, uh, you know, just be still waves. No, he's literally telling them to be muzzled 
is how the original Greek reads it. We wouldn't tell someone to be muzzled, but we, you know, you know I, w- I would never encourage my children to say this, but it- it's essentially shut your mouth or shut up, be calm. And immediately it says the winds and the waves, they cease. You know, I used to tell the youth, anytime you think that you're as powerful as God or as wise as God, take a, a bowl of cereal after you drank all the cereal in it and shake it back and forth on the table and watch the, the milk go to and fro. And then you tell it to be still and see how it works out for you. Not only does it stop, but immediately the winds and the waves stop. And the reason why it does is because the same voice the waters heard in Genesis 1 and 2 is the same word, the same voice that it hears in the Gospels. We exist through the One who is the Son, the author of Hebrews says. And in fact, we have no existence this day apart from the One who is Son. So not only has the Son of God created, but the Son of God by His providence upholds. And again, that's in our catechism questions. Again, on 941, question 18 in our hymnal. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, ordering them and all of their actions to His own glory. You see, the heir of all things is the Lord God Almighty, Jesus. But in His power, He creates and He also upholds. He creates and He also upholds. If you look at the end of verse 3, we're going to handle the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, Lord willing, next week. But in verse 3, it speaks to the Lord Jesus Christ and His work of providence. As it says, And He, talking about the Son, upholds the universe by the Word of His power. The same Word that created the heavens and the earth, the same Word that tells the sea to be still, is the same Word in which He governs all of His creation. You see, our God is not a God who created all things and then stepped back and let nature take its course, we might say. No, our God is one who providentially works in the midst of His creation. Created reality could not survive on its own. It's contingent not upon us, but upon our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not contingent upon policies or politics. It's not contingent upon anything or anyone. Created reality is dependent upon God and God alone. The Lord Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews says, is the one who keeps it all going and holds it all together. And so here's the big idea. Jesus Christ, the one who works in creation and providence, He is the one that upholds and governs all of His creation. But the Gospel tells us, the first Advent season tells us, 
that this powerful God, the heir of all things, would take upon flesh so that he might bear up his people especially. You see, at the end of verse 3, as it talks about his upholding the universe, it literally is saying that he bears up the universe. And the gospel declares for all those who believe that God bears up his people. He sustains his people. He preserves his people. He will bring a perfection to his people. He is preparing us just as he is preparing the new heavens and the new earth for sweet fellowship and communion with God the Father, Son, and Spirit. You remember last week as we said in the Old Testament, nobody was able to look upon the Lord. He was in unapproachable light, we would say. But now because the Lord has spoken through the Son, now that the Father has spoken fully and completely through the Son, we can look upon God and we can see all the fullness of our salvation in Him. See, as we look upon Christ, we not only see our creation in our providential upkeeping, but we see the very God who took on flesh for the salvation of all those who would believe upon Him. As He begins His gospel ministry, He tells us, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is He saying? He's saying exactly what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.1. That the fullness of time has come, and now God speaks through me, the Son. And as we focus upon that, this Advent season, as we think about the Son who is by His very nature God, He humbles Himself, puts Himself under the law, makes Himself a servant who is despised and rejected. He carries the weight of His people's sins on His shoulders all the way to Calvary. He suffers shame upon the cross, pain on the cross, in order that you and I might be purified and made right with God. You see, the heir of all things in Hebrews 1 is the very one who will make Himself nothing so that we might be co-heirs with Him. Co-heirs with Him. And so we see, after Jesus dies on the cross of Calvary, as He's laid in the grave, as He is resurrected, and as He ascends back to glory, the author of Hebrews says that He sits at the right hand of the Father, taking His rightful place upon the throne. The throne that was His. And He looks at the Father at the right hand, and He says, I long for My people to share this throne with Me. Because as God's throne is forever and ever, as the psalmist says in Psalm 110, as the throne is always His, He counts equality with God. He counts His kingship as nothing so that we might reign with Him forever and ever as co-heirs, brothers and sisters of Christ. The Father being our Heavenly Father, who will one day tell the Son to usher in His kingdom consummated. Eternally our home and His home. And we bow before the majesty of Jesus Christ who has paved the way for us to be in unhindered light. Let's pray together.
God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come knowing that You have demonstrated Your love for us through the Lord Jesus Christ as He took upon the form of a servant, as He bared, bore our sins all the way to Calvary, as He was laid in the grave, as He ascended to the right hand of the Father. We know that You have demonstrated Your love for us by communicating the Gospel to us through the Son, Your Son. And may we believe upon Him so that He might be ours and we His, so that we might be sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father with Christ being our elder brother, that the heir of all things might be the one in which we would say that we are co-heirs with so that we might reign for eternity alongside of Him. We do thank, thank You for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank You for the Incarnation. And we pray, Lord, that we would believe it all the more this day. In the name of Christ, we ask these things. Amen.